Hey, Tall Talking, Tayo Talking, I wish I could say my name correctly. Welcome back, guys. It's actually been a minute. It's been a while. Um, that's not my fault. That's April. And guess who isn't here? April. But um, we miss her. But this is an important podcast. And I know I say it's always an important podcast. But because we have our very first real interview, not with little friends, not with some person off the street, I'm talking about, honestly, I'm going to just come out and say it, the most beloved teacher in the Asian American Studies program, possibly in the whole university, Dr. Mimi Cook. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. <laughs> Thank you for having me. What a wonderful introduction. Of course, of course. Um, I think before I get into, no, no, I, we need, I need to toot your horn a little bit more before we get into like why you're here and how we even met. So Dr. Mimi Cook is a Vietnamese American scholar, teacher, and writer on race, religion, queer people of color politics, mental health, and Asian American mo motherhood. Meaning, literally, she was meant to be on this podcast, in which we're all about intersectionality, all about talking about the topics that nobody else wants to talk about, like this is the match made in heaven. Uh, she holds a PhD in religious studies and feminist studies from UC Santa Barbara, and is an official TED Talker presenter. That's on your resume now. Uh, from the TEDx UMD, University of Maryland talk, the revolution is in the heart, which was a beautiful letter to your daughter. She has appeared in Briar Patch Magazine, Black Girl Dangerous, and is a guest editor on the recently released special issue of the Asian American Literary Review, which came out in January. Awesome. So, the way me and... Is it Dr. Mimi or Mimi? Mimi's fine. The way me... It feels so special. <laughs> the, way Mimi, the way me and Mimi met uh, actually was through the the TED talk um, me as well as my spoken word group performed at the TEDx event and um, she came on I think either immediately before or immediately after us and she comes up to me and says wow that piece was really beautiful if you ever want to do anything like with the Asian American department if you ever want to do a slam or anything come talk to me and I thought it was just being polite I was almost never going to take you up on the offer. I was like, what? Like, none of us were Asian. We, oh, actually, Asiana is. Anyway, um, I didn't think we'd ever have a space to sort of come together. And lo and behold, this was before the podcast was a thing. Now I have this opportunity to talk about, which on this college university is a very, very strong minority of, um, of Asians and Asian Americans. Someone who can give me and my audience uh, nuanced perspective on a very um, little talked about demographic, a very misunderstood demographic. So I actually just want to jump straight into it. I don't want to cut, I don't want to talk about my week or why we haven't made an episode. I don't want to talk about it because I feel like we're going to have a really fun conversation and it's going to be insightful. So one thing that I want to, since this is my first interview and I'm a little nervous because I've never really interviewed anybody before, is I want to make sure that we set context for who who are you speaking for because i feel like a lot of times people will i'll, I'll just use myself as an example or my demographic for an example when people talk to me they'll be like i'm speaking for all black people or i'm speaking for all nigerians and i'm not i'm speaking honestly we're only all speaking for ourselves but even if i had to say what i'm passionate about and what i've done my research on i am usually only speaking for second generation nigerian students if we want to get more specific in America. So I would like you to identify your the, the group that you identify with most, what you feel 
what you feel, the place that you're coming from. Thank you for that. Um, so I identify as Asian American. I also identify as Vietnamese American. Um, and as you mentioned, intersectionality, I have a, a few sets of identities I identify with. I don't know what I would say I identify most with. Um, I'm also queer, I'm also a mother, um, I'm also feminist, I'm a writer, I'm a daughter, mm. and a lot of things, and in different contexts, right, different things are going to be highlighted. Um, but for me, as a teacher and scholar and writer on Asian American issues, I feel like I can speak to some of those issues um, in terms of how it comes up in the classroom, how it comes up in my research, the kinds of communities of scholars and writers and artists and intellectuals that I kind of um, navigate and work with, uh, then I feel I can speak about what's important to or what are um, relevant issues for those sets of communities. Okay, cool. So speaking of Asian American and Asian American issues, what do you feel are the most relevant issues and facts that plague specifically university students? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and it's something that I've been trying to have a discussion about and, and push discussion about for a long time. Yes. You know, a, let's back up a little bit. So I think <laughs> a lot of um, Asian American studies scholars and teachers feel frustration with connecting with students sometimes. They're like, we have Asian American students, they don't come take our classes a lot, right? Like, we, we, can't, we can't figure out how to get them interested in Asian American studies. Um, or they might, students might say, well, I am Asian American, I already know what it means to be Asian American, I don't need to take any classes on Asian American studies. So there's a disconnect between what Asian American studies does, what students perceive that it is, and then Asian American studies faculty not knowing how to kind of bridge um, that divide. And for me, the ways that I've found to bridge that divide is really thinking hard about what are the issues that students face, what is important to them, what are the forces that are really bearing down and pressing on them that they may not have names for, but they are experiencing. And so then I see my job as to help them get, give names to the things they're experiencing and then help them think through and, and kind of co-create spaces that we can think through what it means to be Asian American, often second generation, um, college student, dealing with X, Y, and Z. And so the X, Y, and Z that I focus on that I think um, people should think about are, is mental health and um, relatedly family dynamics, family issues, and the kinds of academic pressures that students face. And, and I see those things as all interconnected and linked together. I, I see a lot of my students really struggling with the pressures to succeed um, academically and the pressures to conform to certain kinds of expectations about what success looks like that comes from a lot of places. A lot, uh, of, places. A lot of places, right? Yeah. It comes from a kind of, you know, American popular, popular culture ideal of what success looks like, but also within their families. And I see them navigating that. And those kinds of pressures are very real and very difficult to navigate. And I see that weighing down on students. So we try to discuss those things and, and talk about them. So let's back up a second just sure. to, uh, to remain inclusive. When you, um, you said second generation, your definition of second generation is the first the first set of kids to be born in America, but their parents are from another land. Yes, yes. so there's definitely, there's definitely some yeah. confusion with terminology sometimes. Yeah. Um, and when I use it, the, the term, when I, when I discuss generations, I refer to the first generation, um, I mean 
the immigrant generation, right? And when I say second generation, I mean those born in the U.S. Um, or who came very young. Some people start to put a 1.5 in there <laughs> to try to capture those who, who come not as adults but are a little bit older, so yeah. therefore have had a childhood somewhere else. Um, and we I, have a slightly different experience. Because me and my circles, well, we've always considered ourselves first generation. Yeah. Um, because, like, we are the first generation to be on this soil. Yeah. Also because, you know, it's first it makes it sound a little bit more important. First sounds important. Uh, yeah, right. but I, I'm slowly starting to, I, I, I'm starting to understand the, the logistics of calling the, the immigrant generation, my, my parents, basically, the yeah. first generation and me, the and second generation. There's some reasons behind that. I mean, I'm, you know, terminology is always made up, right? So yeah. we can, as long as we agree on what something means, we can have a meaningful discussion. But the reason why I'm, what, I, I, I like referring to the immig immigrant generation as the first generation is because I want to stress that the immigrant generation is an American generation, right? And I want to push back against the idea of immigrants as complete foreigners. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very dangerous concept, especially in, in for Asian Americans. The idea that Asian Asians come from foreign, exotic, strange places that are incompatible with American society. And that's kind of uh, implicated in, in us wanting to think of the, that generation as immigrant and foreign instead of as being an American generation, adapting to American life. Right. So. Yeah. I actually like that you said that about not coming from the stigma of, or the assumption of coming from some forward, um, foreign backwards land. Mm -hmm. How do you feel that the issues that you just brought up and that point curates, not, not mm. affects, but curates the college experience for our university students, for our university students of Asian American descent? That is a great question. That is a huge question, but that is a good question. So, you know, two concepts that kind of basic standard Asian American studies kind of foundation um, is the perpetual foreigner, the idea of Asians as always being foreign, um, no matter how many generations here, right, Asian Americans will still get the question, where are you from? Or the compliment, you speak English so well, mm, right? Oh my God, I hate that. So the idea that, that they're always foreign and that, yes, these foreign, supposedly foreign cultures are you said backwards, different, exotic, um, not modern. And, and that idea actually comes out of something we call Orientalism. This division of the world into the West and the East, and the East being backwards and not modern and traditional or primitive, um, not civilized, whereas the West is seen as this um, progressive space um, that's the opposite of the East. And that construction of the world informs how Asian Americans are perceived in the US. And informs how they see themselves and then how they try to navigate belonging in the U.S. So the other side of that coin is the model minority, which you might have heard of. Um, We're aware. Yes. We're so, you know, I teach in my classes, we think about this idea then of Asian Americans as the perfect ideal minority in the U.S. in that um, supposedly they work hard, they have great family values, and they, they value education, and they can pick themselves up by the bootstraps as compared to other minorities that are, you know, lazy and asking for handouts. And this is, comes directly out of um, the 1960s and movements for civil rights and for black equality. And so Asian Americans being held up as this kind of foil, right? Because of their, like, um, stereotypical, submissive, sort of trying to fit Part in of, major. Yes. Cause, um, the last episode we had, we talked about the movie Get Out, which I don't know if you've seen yet. I have yet. not seen yet. I don't I'm, know if you've I'm seen it. I'm terrified of, 
I'm terrified of horror movies, even though well, I know everyone this, says it's so amazing and I really want to watch it. But it's it. not like a horror horror movie up until like probably the end. By that time, you're so, you're, listen. You I did watched episode, the trailer we, we and did, I was no. terrified just from the trailer. <laughs> it is not that, it's definitely not like for, like Elm Street or anything like that. It's definitely more social horror and... But that's sometimes scarier. It is scarier right? because... That shit is real. Well, yeah. Like People you, do crazy shit to each other. You were looking at it, you were like, damn. Well, I was looking at it, I'm like, damn. That shit could really happen. That could to me. happen. Like, yes. That could really happen. But all I want to say about it in context with this conversation is that there's a very strange scene where um, we sort of it's basically the scene where we sort of find out that something isn't right with all the other minorities that are not white in here. And there's one Asian person in the. There's scene. an Asian American character. I've read yeah. the, I've read a couple think pieces yeah. about about Asian why American he's there because actually he's there. The, mm-hmm. I guess the honestly for me the more conceptually weird thing is the fact that like there are articles about why there was one Asian American in there when, like, if there was, like, one... The fact that... Because we... I feel Western media got the idea that we need to add more people with darker skin in there. We can put... We can throw, like, two, three... You need, like... You can't just put one black person in there, right? These two, three, four... Maybe you need uh, a Latinx person, but... Well, that's tokenism, right? Yeah, That's yeah. tokenism, but and we, that's, like, di- the way we understand diversity nowadays. We definitely counts as skimp on Asian Americans in media, Asians in media in general, to the point where, like, when you see one, you're like, huh. You like, notice it. You notice it but, um, a lot more starkly than nowadays when you notice it. Because, yeah, the token minority, honestly, when you think of the token minority, you think of a black guy, you think of a of a Latinx person. But anyway, so, to the model minority um, myth sort of narrative, he's there, and he's with all these white people who are doing, I won't spoil it, but they're doing nefarious things that are really fucking weird. Um, and they're like, why is he and there? he's sort of part of it. And he's, he's part right? of it, but he still okay. stands out. This idea right. that, like, and that the is, Asian person... That is the be... question of complicity, right? Yeah. And that is the question of where do, where are Asian Americans in the kind of racial landscape and racist landscape of American white supremacy? And that is a question that haunts Asian American studies and haunts Asian Americans, right? And so the model minority is this one moment when that when that word appeared in the 1960s, um, and then since then, when people have been trying to understand it, the phenomenon and that that um, category of existence for Asian Americans, you know, scholars have looked at that and said, okay, this is how Asian Americans have been narrated, um, and for, for various reasons. Um, one, because, you know, pitting groups of color against each other is a very effective strategy. It is, right? yes. But also because at the time in the 60s, we had immigration change that actually... Um, created a uh, preference system based on education. It's 19, no, it's 1940s is the um, Japanese Exclusion Act. The, that, that was actually even earlier. That oh, was, really? yeah, that was early. It was early 1900s early when we 19- had the various exclusion acts. Okay. Um, but 1965 was the Hart Seller Act, which actually uh, in some ways ended exclusion, but really what it did was create a ranked preference system based on education hmm. and skills because we wanted high-skilled high labor, right? right? Yeah. And so it, it made preference for doctors, engineers, nurses. And so then we started actually drawing uh, immigrants from South Asia, um, Korea, China, who are highly educated and highly skilled. And so then we have this now community of Asian immigrants in the U.S. with much higher levels of education than other communities of color, but also higher than their counterparts in countries of origin. Hmm. So now when you have that, you see this supposed success narrative, and then now people can say, oh look, they're so successful, but then they, they say that it's because of 
Asian cultural values instead of immigration policies that actually pulled over all the college educated is that, people. Is that the right? same? Is that the same act that caused? I, I remember there was like a really weird trade off where they wanted to, um, they wanted to stop immigration from China, but not from Japan. Or J- Japan, yes. Japan was afraid yeah. they were going to do the same to them. So they were like, "Listen, we won't come over, but you have to let our students." be able to come mm. over as exchange students for work uh, for student visas mm-hmm. and then they can come right back. So what happens is like a lot of Japanese kids I'm I yeah, I think it has to be in, in That's the mid sixties. Er- much earlier. Yeah, or sorry, much earlier. Mm-hmm. Um able to come over and they get their education in American university and then they come back and I'm wondering if that sort of Immigration with the precursors have been super interesting and <laughs> fucked up, right? But they shape so much what um, our communities actually look like here. Who's allowed to come here Right? And by what means are they allowed to come here? And then how are they recognized once they come here? And so that's shaped the Asian American community so much. But then we narrate that not by looking at history or immigration, but by saying, look, Asian Americans are culturally superior in some way. So we have this now two stories that go hand in hand Asian Americans as culturally superior, hardworking, family values, blah, 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 but also as foreign and different and unassimilatable. That perpetual right? foreigner. And so when you put those two together, there's a tension, but they also can work together sometimes. And that informs, or as the word you said, curates a kind of experience for Asian immigrants and their children and following generations trying to navigate those stories that are being told about their communities um, that they may not have names for, but it does bear down on how they understand themselves and how they understand their relationship to other people in the U.S., um, how they understand belonging, whether they get to count as American or not. And then what I teach about in my second gen class a lot is what are the pathways to belonging made available to Asian Americans and how have Asian Americans navigated those pathways and what is ethical or unethical about the choices that we make when we try to figure out how to belong in the U.S. That is and sometimes we make unethical choices, right? And that's some of the complicity that comes up. Um, but we have to understand the pressures that are involved that shape some of these uh, choices around belonging. Do we throw other people under the bus as we're trying to climb the ladder and, and find something that promises security in the U.S.? Or do we think about um, you know, throwing that aside and forming solidarity with other communities in order to for something that's a larger uh, uh, blanket of equality, right? And people are navigating those politics, not just on the electoral politics scale, but in their daily lives, yeah. right? So when you said when you said solidarity, do you mean solidarity like with like in, uh, inter ethnicity or in in their both, own communities? Both, because yeah. I I always find something very interesting about um, bringing it back to like the curation of like the college experience, how this sort of um, path to belonging this quest for belonging comes to a head because you know we're we, we are thrown into um uh, a four-year to five-year storm of constant change and the way that we that i see um especially minority students cope with it are are vastly different depending on the communities so mm. i can only speak from from my own experience but i know as a um i'm african but because of the way I speak and like, if you don't know my name, usually you'll just think I'm black. So I'll talk from black and African. 
I am expected to, this is my path. When I come in, I'm expected to join Black Student Union and be, uh, have an African-American studies class and hang around with all black people until, like they expect that for my freshman year, until I meet a white person and then I tag mm. along with them and then I become ingrained with their that friend. I'm so their I'm, di- I'm their diversity token. Like I'm, basically like, I use the, bl- the black uh, college community as like, a landing pad but I'm expected to eventually because you know we are the most I I say this a lot we are not the most uh, we are not the most prestigious minority but we are the most comfortable one we are lately up since since the the millennial generation you have seen black people in everything like why I think white people are most comfortable with reaching out to us because they're like they they understand the impact conditionally conditionally always conditionally conditions that must be followed for acceptance yes and belonging so we're 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 supposed to spread out and like sort of sprinkle our diversity throughout their Uh you know their caucasity or whatever but their caucasity (laughs) um which is why you get a lot of stories from like you know you it's almost like with uh certain groups of my friends there's like two camps it's like either you stay with your people the people that you grew up with and you know you just don't really fuck with white people or you know you're like other people who say i'm gonna go out and make the make the jump to like try to make my pool as diverse as po- mm. diverse as diverse as possible, but you get stories that you know like stories like That's me where people super have asked interesting. me, yeah, people are like asked me, asked me, why do black people choose such funny names? Why don't they just get names from their own country? And that's a story for maybe later yes. in the podcast. Uh, but what I want I want to bring it to what what I've what I've heard and what I've observed from the the university different Asian communities that sort of sense of being a perpetual foreigner or solidarity causes them to clump up a lot. Um, mm. I'm part of um, this dance group, um, G Girls and Wasabi Boys, shout out to GGWB. Um, and I remember I had a conversation with a friend saying that I, saying that if you're, if you're a new Asian American or Asian um, student on campus, really the only way to get friends is you either like become friends with like try to make normal friends, which it'll be hard because you'll be Asian and that happens, or you go to JASA, um, FC, um, Filip- Filipino Association, go to KSA, you you clump right. with your ethnicity, and that's why, because they were, I, I asked them a slightly ignorant question, saying like, why do I always see like Asians clumped up together in a way I don't see with any other demographic? And they're like, whoa, we all, we're all in the same club, because if you're in that mm-hmm. one club, if you're in Korean Student Association, you will know all the Koreans on campus. And that sort of mm-hmm. solidarity keeps them, keep give them that community that I think a lot of times you're looking for the belonging, but also yeah, I it creates a strife saying like how do you how do you integrate? You make a couple of really good observations here that are making me think about it. So you know I, I'm so I'm not an expert on um, Asian American college like socializing and and, yeah. and 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 you know joining clubs and how, how and their social circles. Um, there are people who study that, which I find fascinating. I will say though, based on what you're saying, a couple a couple of observations. One, you're you're describing what you're describing this expectation to diversify your social networks, um, and seeing that building or having community of solely black folk as somehow a beginning point that you have to move out of or move from, to me speaks to a kind of diversity as a value in a very specific way. That diversity has become held up by the university as like, this is a good thing, 
but this is the way it must look, mm-hmm. right? It has to look like you have white friends. That is what diversity looks like. Or that allowing white people to have friends of color is diversity. Because, you know, they, they need that to and, check and, off their report right. card. And that is not the same thing as equity or as solidarity, right? And so that's a completely depoliticized way of understanding racial interactions and social social interactions um, that still privileges, though, white people, right? And so, and devalues what you described earlier as a kind of community that can be built amongst those you feel like you actually have things in common with, right? Um, and so, like, with Asian Americans, this phenomenon you're seeing makes sense to me, why Asian Americans look for other Asian Americans. But also, the term Asian American is not a natural term. There's actually nothing naturally in common between um, a Vietnamese American yeah. and a Japanese American, right? Uh, but the term actually also came out of the 60s as a political term, as a way to build solidarity, like you said, between ethnic groups. It's a pan-ethnic political term that said, we are going to now organize under this umbrella term because we are, one, racialized that way, right? So we're responding to how people see us as all the same, but we're also going to have more power if we work together. And so let's now organize under this term and say we are Asian American, we are fighting for Asian American rights. And those are not natural alliances either. So yeah, so that's a great observation that you're seeing. So I think students um, are finding community along those alliances, even if they don't have the kind of historical context for understanding why those alliances were built. Like Asian American Student Union um, is a kind of umbrella organization, right, that holds uh, under it a coalition of all the other Asian American student organizations and Greek life. That's a political decision. That's not a natural grouping, right? That's like we want to hold these together and, and build community this way. And you're right that that may or may not be recognized by the university as sort of as diversity, but then, yes, they seem to be striving for a different, another kind of diversity. A more, um, I don't even want to call it superficial, it's even more than superficial, it's like, it's photo- photogenic. Photogenic, photogenic, it's about PR and, yeah, and yeah, the PR. image of the university, I was of ta- course. We were talking about um, it in my, in, in my management class, um, saying that if you, if you ever had one of those campuses back when we were first applying to universities, that they always showed all the minority students when they sent you mail. Mm-hmm. It probably means they don't have a lot of minority mm-hmm. students. It probably means that they cherry picked and made sure they were in there because they were like, "What do what do the facts say?" And um, that's so true. She she's she's a she's a white woman, uh, so that was even more stark to like hear that. And I just kind of forget about that. But you kind of forget that people still think like that because okay. you see it satir you see it sat satir satiricized. You see it in satirize, satirize. You mm-hmm. satirize so much. You think nobody would actually like put a whole bunch of minorities on there and think I would oh, fall for that. Oh, but they do it every day. Yeah. Now speaking of, so we talked about the model minority, and we talked about um, sort of um, um, uh, pan pan ethnic. Pan uh-huh. ethnic. What other main themes or recurring patterns do you sort of notice across your studies or across the the Asian American experience? So actually, to back up to we're we're talking about solidarity, either in, kind of intra ethnic solidarity and then also solidarity across racial lines. Um, solidarity across, across racial lines is both, has always historically happened, right? And is a kind of a suppressed history, a history we don't actually under, know about because people aren't highlighting that work. Um, 
And so that's always happened kind of at a local level because of communities being, you know, kind of smashed together um, because of various kind of urban design or right, yeah. immigration settlement policies that put people in certain communities and then they're working together or working, and there's, you know, working against each other. But there's Wait, people have always had to work alongside each other and figure out things. Their historians doing great work excavating these kinds of alliances. That being said, alliances are also difficult, <laughs> right? They're really difficult and it requires um, a, a lot of ethical work and political work that may make oneself vulnerable. So I like to talk a lot about vulnerability in my classes, the ways in which we are vulnerable to um, certain kinds of state policies and violence. Could you give an example? Um, sure. I mean, the most, like, you know, kind of obvious is when you think about the undocumented and being vulnerable because they do not have documentation, right? Yeah. And so what can you, the, the choices you make are so circumscribed by the risk, right, that you face because of your relationship to the state. So undocumented folk have this extremely risky situation. They cannot put themselves on the line in lots of ways because mm. they will get picked up and, and deported, right? Like that, that, like that is the real stakes. And so on a kind of um, smaller scale or kind of maybe less apparent, we all have relationships to the state that we're worried about, right? I mean, in African-American studies, right, they um, kind of always talked about is black men and their relationship to the police state mm -hmm. and that kind of vulnerability just walking down the street, right? And so Asian-Americans face also kinds of vulnerabilities that then they are trying to navigate and think about the kind of choices they can make. And so that's going to inform whether you put yourself on the line or not for other communities. And it's hard. It's hard work. And I think people are doing it. It's not always highlighted. But then people also are not doing it, too. Both is happening. <laughs> and for me, I want to think, I want to try to encourage my students to think about their own vulnerabilities and the choices that they're making and make them conscious about the choices they are making politically, right? Are you aligning yourself? We have all, we, we do it on a daily basis in our personal lives. We make political choices. We just don't realize they're political. And so I'm, I try to help my students see the kind of politics of their own lives, their personal, you know, the politics as per, personal as political, political as personal, right? Um, and the choices they make and the kinds of consequences of the kinds of choices that they make. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. I one thing that I think really is missing and will come into play during the the next set of primaries and the general election in 2018 is I think for the first time first time ever um, the there will be a new minority demographic mm -hmm. to on, I want to say like connect with but honestly you're just going to pander um, to, but it is the is the Asian American vote because when I was following, I I like politics. So when I when I followed the last three elections, there was no there was no like qualms or any sort of um, disruption or discussion about policies that affect mm -hmm. Asian American or Asian immigrant or um, Asian people living in America. Because as far as you know, politicians are considered, they're like, who are they? Like they're just they're they're like discounted white people. Like they don't seem to ever complain about any of the stuff we're doing mm -hmm. like we don't the what I wanted what I was um, wanted to say before when you talked about uh, being communities and through through solidarity like urban communities uh, people like to act people like to act like uh, for example like my mother says um, Asian Asians are better than black people literally uh, because they know how to stay in their own neighborhood 
they like they like find each wow. other they find each other and they all say we're gonna live in the neighborhood acting like there wasn't redistricting redistricting right. back in the like early actual city. policies in like place putting that, them in yes. their places because we think because right now it's more apparent and more rampant obviously um with like urban with um government housing with with uh black people and with latinx people but just because we don't see it as much now doesn't mean it didn't happen before because it already had happened Mm -hmm. uh that's why but also like if you look at refugee you know resettlement policies refugees were put into inserted into urban poverty in in a lot of instances like the the bronx is a huge example of like southeast asian refugees being inserted into urban poverty um professor eric tang works on that research there and the kinds of um policies in place that have not allowed those refugees to actually work their way out in a model minority way out of poverty, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you're interested in politics and especially electoral politics and voting, um, Professor Janelle Wong, who is the director of the Asian American Studies program here, that's her. That's her oh, work. Cool. Yeah, so you should definitely talk to her. She, you know, does um, studies and is very involved in thinking about how do Asian Americans vote, how do you on that, particular honestly, issues. That, that's an anomaly in the media. Right. What are the issues they vote or care about? Um, how does it break? down if you disaggregate the data based on ethnic community, they look very different. The Vietnamese American community votes very differently than say um, the Chinese American community, right? And then don't even get into like coastal versus, you know, different <laughs> yeah, areas yeah. of the country and so yeah. But so that, that's would, one thing I'm very I'm very excited aside, excited about is I wanna see more diversity in, in our political options, first of all. Uh, which I think uh, especially after since people who are my age are living through a very tumultuous time in our administration um, is, is definitely to, to see um, an uptick. Now, I think I want to get into the, the biggest meat, or, well, this is the part of the of the podcast where I just, like, basically tell you how I felt about, you mentioned um, AASUF, um, Asian American Student Union. Um, you recently did a talk at their Feel the Unity, mm-hmm. feel the, yeah, feel the annual, Unity. Annual Leadership Conference. Annual Leadership on. Conference on um, Asians and mental health, which I think mental health is also a reoccurring theme yes. um, in, the Asian commu- in the Asian American community, almost simply because it's always very striking to people who don't really um, think about it, that they could be suffering from the anxiety of always 24-7 having to be successful, mm-hmm. um, which, like, is not, and, like, it's not even just, like, natural born uh americans like that's a that's a trope through all immigrant like um second generation immigrant immigrant families this idea that um you know the the idea that a b minus that a b plus is not enough that an a minus is not enough that if somebody got an a in the class then like then why didn't you get the a plus in the class so i want to talk um sort of about that workshop and eventually we're gonna have to touch on uh field depth which was just my damn thing that Filial, filial, filial death, filial death uh-huh. which just blew my mind. So, um, I guess I want to start with how did you how did you prepare for that seminar? Oh, the workshop. Yeah. Sure. So, uh, I teach. You know, I've been teaching the second generation Asian Americans class for a few years now, and I developed it basically uh, almost exactly what you've mentioned as two major issues. I developed it thinking about mental health as a starting point because I see my students suffering, right? So how can we think about the humanity of folks um, and the kinds of pain that they're experiencing 
And then how do we talk about that in the classroom? And then the second issue, you said filial debt. And then how is that related to students' sense of debt to their parents and kind of family dynamics around debt, sacrifice, gratitude, and um, academic achievement and success right, for second generation. So I, I designed the course thinking about those concepts and how to give students frameworks and then also just engender conversation around those things. And so when I did the workshop, I was translating some of my course material into this workshop for those who have not taken my class, right? How do I start a conversation? And so I ask, you know, I like to always ask students, um, how many of you feel like you owe something to your parents, right? You owe, you owe your parents for their sacrifices. And like almost every student raises their hand. And then we start thinking about why that is. And even that question alone sometimes is mind-boggling because it's so naturalized. Like, of course, of course you, you of owe course you something, right. Like, they gave you life of or course. they gave you... So for me to ask, like, why is that so? Why do you think you feel that way? Wait, we can ask that? Like, that doesn't make sense to even ask it. That is just our world, right? So I ask, why do you feel that way? Or where do you think that comes from? And then, um, what do you think you owe? What is, what is it that you actually owe to your parents? And how do you pay that back? Yeah, and I, I, I want to talk about what we actually did in that in that mm -hmm. workshop because that was super interesting. Because uh, um, you started writing on the board, like, so what are the qualities um, that you, what makes the good Asian child? Right. So we wrote, like, what the occupation needs to be. You need to be a lawyer, a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, what's the lawyer, doctor? There's one more. Know, maybe engineer. So engineer. That in there, there we go. Right? Um, so, so some, some kind of successful um, career, but then success is also defined very narrowly because it has to look in these ways. Only these careers count, count as success. And you can't even be a certain type of doctor. You, I mean, you can't be any type of doctor. Right. You need to be, you know, the best a kind. Medic, the best ne kind. Need to be right? neurotrain. And if you Basically. can't handle that, then maybe you can go down the, the, <laughs> the hierarchy of different kinds of doctors. Um, but then students, when I ask them, what do they feel like they owe, they start listing not just their occupation, but also they owe good grades, they owe marrying the right kind of person. At the right time. At the right time, having the right number of children. Um, I also outlined that I, I, I helped to understand that you also mean that you have to be straight, right? You have oh, to be yeah, straight because you can't just marry the right kind of person in terms of their job. They have to be the right gender, right? They have to be the right religion. Um, you have to also uh, take care of your parents, maybe. So there is some kind of financial returns there, too. But it's also just the caring of your parents. The caring of, to, to even care about the family, keeping con right. contact. Right, there's all them. this labor involved in paying back that debt, and you're right, I do that activity in all my classes, where I write on the board everything they list out. And some students get real specific. They're like, uh, I can't go out, mm. right? I gotta dress a certain way. Call, I have to, yep, I have to tell them my whole schedule. They, um, if I'm not doing schoolwork, I have to be home. And they manage my time. I have to play the piano yeah. or the violin. Oh, I mean, can't, I don't, I don't even, <laughs> even want to, I don't even talk about that, um, the, who is the woman that the Wall Street article by? Yes, 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 yes. So Amy Chua writing about Amy, yeah, Amy Chula's Chi what article, she called Chinese why parenting is superior. Yes, uh, saying that had a, had started out with a list saying like what I didn't or did allow my children children to do. Right, they were not allowed to play any instrument besides the violin or piano, and they were only allowed the, or they they were not allowed to say they didn't want to play the right. violin or piano, um, and. That's harrowing because, like, the instrument thing isn't exactly part of my experience, but, like, the idea of, like, I had to do 
these things, mm-hmm. basically sort of as a puppet for you know my parents' parents, my parents' puppet. I like that. Uh, my so, parents' colleagues or parents' yes. friends. But there's a we, kind of performative aspect of it. Of, which, of which, being this good child, so they can show you off. Which goes into like what you know, I, what I assume like is the conclusion everybody reaches by the end of the activity that you owe your parents, you, yes, yourself. You are own, and that was the part where I think somebody even uh, went up to get uh, to um, to leave the room because that was too much. They were feeling really uh, emotional about that. Yeah. I I was feel I was shocked at it that I never really pictured it that way, but that's that's true. You know, I am very, they expect all these things of me, and it's not really singular things. I can't check them off the box. Right. At the end of the day, like, I... It's not just gratitude, right? It's not just a thank you note or an I love you, right? It is your whole life and who you are. And so I get this idea from um, Erin Ning. She's a professor at UC Santa Barbara uh, in the Asian American Studies Department there. She's a... a, a, um, Asian American literature specialist. And so she writes about intergenerational conflict in the Asian American family um, and the immigrant family dynamics. And for her, this is her idea about debt and how she's traced out the dynamics of debt in the book. The book is called Ingratitude um, that she works on. So I try to then, yes, demonstrate it to my students. And they they, they fulfill it every time. They fill out this whole list, then they are horrified, (laughs) like you're saying, about what they owe. And then I, then I, this is the, this is the real hammer that I drop on them, that not only do they owe their whole life, but the more successful you are, it actually shows the value of your parents' sacrifice and therefore increases your debt. You do not actually pay off your debt. Which goes right in hand in hand with the, with the idea which he touches on in the article um, about child as investment family as economic unit saying that i could i could literally uh, replace kid with stock and now i'm in my home field because i'm an accounting major um yes children are as an investment parents are investing and their success then determines the value of that investment if i get a doctorate from yale that does not mean i surpass what my parents did it means they raised a kid Yes, that, that because of what right. they did, they could go to Yale. Therefore, so now you have to be even more, more grateful. grateful. Your success, and that's all of that is based on their sacrifice and their investment. And that that scares the shit out of me. That scares the shit out. That scared the shit out of everybody at, at the workshop. Um, and then you start to so after like putting that hammer down, you start to to break it down even more about like okay, so now that's life. That's what we're all dealing with. So now what, what do we do, do? What do we do? And that, <laughs> honestly, I didn't think it could get more scary, but uh, then... <laughs> then it got more scary? <laughs> it, got, it got a little bit more scary be, uh, when you started sort of um, describing that the only way to really do it, and I think to to an extent, well, personally, I know that I do it to an extent, but when you said that it's, it's constant disobedience mm-hmm. to, but when you um, related it to like, your parents are going to paint that as pain, saying yes. that you I have to look at that board and say like, what am I not going to do? Like, maybe I'm not going to be, like, I chose the route to say, well, I didn't really, I'm going to become an accountant. But <laughs> I, I, I chose we the route. We acquiesce, right? We have yeah. to figure out how we how we navigate these but things. But I, I chose to say that, like, to tell my dad, which was a very hard thing for me to do, that, like, that's not my passion. Like, for right. like I told, I've told him um, over Thanksgiving that, right. you know, I'm doing this, I'm getting the good grades like you want, I'm, I'm fulfilling these things, but to me, being an accountant is plan B. I want to pursue music. I want to do art. Mm. And oh, that, those are not on the list. No, they're not, yeah, they're not on the not list. And my, and, and my dad was like, he, he winced a little bit. But, you know, I think he, 
I, I, luck, I was lucky to get a more understanding parent that was like, well, basically, as long as you fill out most of the list, I can, like, overlook some things. But I think, like, That's I That's super hope... interesting, right? You still have to check off. I still... So there's some kind of a, a threshold, right? And so, yes, we talked about in our workshop a couple things, kind of where this debt comes from. And, and I won't go into super detail, but Aaron Ning argues that this is a function of immigration, right? This is not about some kind of Asian cultural values that inform the sense of debt. It actually comes out of... Uh, financial adversity and struggle in the U.S. and like you said, children seeing children as investments, um, and and immigrant parents making real sacrifices in order to try to create success for their children in the U.S. That's part of the that's where a lot of it comes from. Then we talked about yes, what do you do about it? And so defiance, if you want to defy this system of expectation and pressure, is really difficult because you cannot just defy it one time, right? Like you're saying, you wanting to do music and doing art, and if you choose to do that, that is an everyday de defiance of what you, being the person that they wanted you to be. And that is an everyday feeling of failure, right? And so that's how I try to contextualize mental health issues for my second generation Asian American students. Dealing with this sense of anxiety, a failure of their selfhood on the line and their relationships with their families on the line for every choice they make. Like those are the stakes that people are feeling in their lives. And that also goes hand in hand with uh, another article um, that was that was commenting on the Amy mm -hmm. Chua saying that it's it's a bet. Your parents. It's a gamble. Your, your, it's a gamble. This kind of parenting and is it's, a gamble. It's. It's nice when it pays off when even even moderately like when they're when your kids are a little richer than you have you know a substantial lifestyle but when it loses it loses hard and when I started doing like introductory research on um, because I had already known the stats uh, for African American um, for Black American depression rates suicide rates mm, and mm -hmm. it's alarmingly high those numbers are comparable in the Asian American community as well. And, and, and you don't expect that because of kind of model minority images about Asian Americans as being naturally successful and everything is going fine in the community, right? And then, oh yeah, sorry. Oh yeah, I just really, I really like the line saying that sometimes things, sometimes things fail, sometimes things die. Mm -hmm. And that's, when you paint that gamble of parenting like that, saying that you're, you're, you're literally, you, you're literally playing life and death. With your with your yes. with your child's life, it, in the end of it, when you you can't bluff, she said you can't bluff kids. Like when they when you say or when you act as if like you will you, disown them, or you I might will disown, disown them, them. I will send you back, or I will I will not love you if you don't do this. Right. Because that's, somewhere mm -hmm. you you're kind of you kind of believe that, and that's a very scary thought. That was a, was a very um, I wouldn't go as far as to say to say triggering, but it was a very harrowing thing to think about that in my right. childhood time that I, I felt like that. Right, this kind of threat of disownment is also part of her research and what my students talk about a lot. And that, yes, the article that you're reading um, talks about that, yes, that threat has to be, actually be real to work, right? So somewhere, even as children might say, of course my parents love me, they want the best for me, they would never really disown me. On, on the one hand, parents actually do disown their kids all the time. <laughs> exactly. All the time, right? There are such things as deal breakers. And so when you listen, when you said, okay, if you follow most of that checklist, then you, do, are, you are not 
hitting the deal breaker, right? But for many parents, for instance, being queer is a deal breaker. And so that's why queer youth have the, some of the highest rates of being disowned, thrown out, being homeless, right? And that is a, uh, every day that you are a failure when you are queer. That's not a one-time choice, <laughs> right? That, that they can kind of try to um, rehabilitate. And so this omen is actually a real thing, even if you on the surface think, oh, my parents would never actually do it. But maybe because you have not transgressed or allowed yourself to transgress in ways that could threaten real disownment. So then I ask my students, like, what ways in your life, what in your life have you actually constrained, killed off, paths you haven't chosen, things you haven't been able to think about because you are so worried about being disowned or being a failure or being a disappointment or being ungrateful? And I think that's, that's a really hard question for a lot, of, a lot of my students to think about. So to wrap up, I don't want to end on too much of a serious stuff. So let's talk about some fun stuff. So depressing. Yeah. Um, what are what are you excited? What what are what are the advancements you're seeing in your field in in um, uh, in the the culture of Asian Americans that you're excited for in in the next coming years? I'm actually so actually this is directly tied to what we're talking about. So you know I just published an issue um, with Asian American Literary called Open an Emergency, which is a special issue on Asian American mental health. And it's, um, I, I guess, edited it, and it's a collaboration with about 75 um, writers, scholars, artists, trying to think about new ways of approaching mental health, trying to decolonize the ways that we think about mental health, um, and push back against certain kinds of uh, psychiatric or medical approaches, and to really contextualize mental health in history, structure, um, racism, violence, colonialism, right, and how those things affect um, our mental well-being. And then also to really think about what, what, what does it even mean to be well? Does it mean just to be productive and to work, right? Why does capitalism define so much how we think about wellness, right? And so I'm excited to see that issue really taking off. People, it's really um, opening up conversation. People are really excited about it, and it's going beyond what the kind of scope that I thought it would. It's not just a scholarly project, right? It's getting adopted by community organizations, awesome. by um, counseling services places, mm. by student organizations trying to find material. People are, people want, people are hungry for ways of talking about mental health that include the whole self, that think about the community, that think about, you know, violence in their lives and... Hashtag intersectionality. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, that's happening now and that's, and I'm so excited to be a part of that conversation. Do you watch a lot of TV? Do you consume media? I do watch some TV, yes. What are you watching right now? <laughs> I am uh, very much waiting for the trailer for the new Game of Thrones. <sighs> Game of Thrones is whatever. <laughs> I'm Not also TV. waiting for Westworld. I need to watch Westworld. Uh, I thought it was like Black Mirror, so I didn't watch it. Uh, Westworld is super interesting. Yeah, I think it does some really hearing. funky, interesting... Um, race stuff hmm. in it yeah it's always down yeah. for the race stuff do you have any favorite agents in cinema that you hope to see more of that's a tough question not really <laughs> do you want did, wait, did, I, did, I support did, did, I support us <laughs> in the media did, I just don't have any particular I, people uh, I actually just saw Zootopia last night now that's a woke movie Zootopia. Like, it's an animated. It's an animated feature. I mean, you know Zootopia. And Zootopia. Zootopia. My daughter uh, watched Zootopia. It uh, has some interesting stuff there. It, it had some interesting. It had very interesting things for. I mean, I think we we said that about like every fucking movie since like Frozen now. 
uh, has interesting things for an animated yes. movie. Which as I somebody, think it, it does push back against certain things. That my concern with Zootopia always is it's kind of embrace of the police state, right? And the kind of glorification right. of the police state. <laughs> you, so you I'm feel just me? like, I would, please stop uh, teaching my daughter. That I would, this I was, is a, glor- a glorified job and that police do the right thing all the time. Like, it was please. weird because <laughs> I was watching it with my friend and I was like, I kept just, you know, I talked throughout movies. So like the police did something. I know it. And then they were just kind of looking at me but like, yo, why do you think the police does stuff? Because I was like, they were hitting so many marks. They're like, of course the police yeah. probably wasn't on this. And but then, they're like, not going to do the that police, in this film. No, they're the heroes. Uh, yeah, I always find it very interesting when like, I'm getting very happy as somebody who like, um, you know what? I got to come out of the closet with it. I really like anime. I really like awesome. Japanese uh, animation. I feel like as I start to get on bigger and bigger platforms, like somebody don't say enough, because like people, you know how it is. Anyway, wait, I will give a shout out to Ali Wong, who I just saw do some stand up mm-hmm. um, here, and she is hilarious. Where'd she do? Where'd she do stand up? Uh, she did a show at the Warner. Awesome. Yeah, it was totally sold out. She's like super huge now because of her um, Netflix special um, that she did last oh, year. Wait. Yes, but she was pregnant. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Now she is no longer pregnant. She has a baby. <laughs> um, and she does, at least in this latest show, a lot of really great stuff about motherhood because now she's a new mother and um, pushing back against certain kinds of narratives around motherhood. And, and she has an interesting brand of feminism and um, a race lens for those things that I appreciate a lot. So. Okay, that's awesome. All right, to leave on a last note, I'm just going to embarrass you further. I'm going to read something that you wrote because I really oh, fuck, no. cause I really fucked with the last um because we talk about mental health and living in a capital state and what does that mean for mental health. You say and your it says B B G D am I black girl, girl dangerous? Yeah, black girl dangerous. Say in the last paragraph of your fee, of of your article, what I need is shared madness to be mad with others, to have others be mad with me and love. I need love that can jump the fuck in with you when you're drowning. Love that reflects back to you both your madness and the fact that you are not actually crazy. Love that holds your hand and walks with you and changes the world with you. Love that sets this mad world on fire with destruction and rebirth. I read that last night. I was incredibly touched. I thought that 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 encapsulated everything that I thought about the entire article about or the entire concept of are we crazy? Are we maladjusted? Or mm-hmm. is this or this the the result of the world acting on us? Are yes. we the are we yes. the weird ones or is society the way society is making me bend against my human nature, against what I feel is yes. natural? Yes. Um, and that that this is what we what we need more of. Both articles like this and both the idea of like you can you're not weird. How you're right. feeling is is not only I mean we love saying that like what you're feeling is um is valid, but not only valid, but it's it's logical. Right. It's rational. Right. This like, world I'm not accept- makes us yeah. crazy. And you're totally right that when you when you frame it as is this me having to bend, right? The world is constantly making us bend and breaking us because of these different kinds of forces, but then tells us it's our fault and tells us that we are, like you said, maladjusted and the world is actually normal and as it should be. And I've always in my work tried to push back against that, right? Try to validate people's feelings and their experiences of dealing with a really fucked up world. Mm. So how do we start there? How do we think about our experiences and how do we deal with this fucked up world and then set it on fire? That's awesome. All stuffed to think about. Thank you so much for thank sitting you. with me. I know I kept you way longer than 20 minutes. I said in the email you would be here. 
Uh, but I hope. <laughs> but this had, was fun. Thank yes, you so I, much. Thank you for saying it was fun. Thank you for giving TNA commentary gone wild our first interview, and we hope to see you again for yes. some other reason. And you're doing really great work with this. So thank you. Thank you. We're shaking hands. You guys can't actually can't see that on camera. All right. So I will see you guys in two weeks. Please remember to um, follow us on Twitter at Tayo Talks, uh, as well as rate us five stars on iTunes. It helps a lot. I already have two five-star ratings, and I was touched. So I will see you guys in the next one.